You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Robert Mackey. And I'm Dr. Valerie Davidson. Thank you for joining us for our fourth official episode of the Progressure Health Podcast. For more information about us, you can visit our website at ProgressureHealth.com. So to t- uh, today, Dr. Davidson, we are going to, we kind of alluded to it a little bit towards the end on the last podcast. We're going to talk about PMS. So if there's any any men listening, don't get freaked out. You know, don't don't turn off the channel or don't turn off the podcast. You know, this is your your wives, your girlfriends, you know, whatever. They're probably, you know, have either are or have dealt with something like this in the past. This could be helpful for you as well to give some insight and some understanding as to what a woman goes through on a monthly basis. Yeah, actually, I have a lot of women that come in with their men, with their husbands, with their boyfriends, and we're talking about this because while the men might not have PMS, they might be the brunt of it. Yeah, right. Well, and like you said, the men come in with the women, but sometimes the men encourage the women to come in because you know there might be there might be some issues there. Women are. I'm sitting across, and you and I are talking. Women, I'll say this, you know, and I mean this in the nicest possible. Women are complicated, right? Hormonally, they're very complicated, so there's a lot of opportunity for things to go awry. And PMS is kind of a manifestation of that. So we're going to kind of dive into it. As I alluded to in the last episode, really the conventional approach for PMS is birth control. And I don't think that's really a good solution or good option at all. I think all it does is just kind of band-aid the problem a little bit. And there's much better ways to deal with it than just... uh, you know, going on, uh, going on a birth control pill. So, if you had to describe to someone PMS, premenstrual syndrome, it's a syndrome, right? So it's not a disease, really necessarily. It's just a a syndrome is usually a collection of symptoms. What would you say are the most, you know, common, you know, the most common three to five symptoms that a woman's going to deal with during PMS? Well, before, you know. Like you said, it's before period PMS, but for some re- some reason, it usually has to do with a lot of times we'll get into the adrenals and the thyroid and the female reproductive hormones. Is PMS can last like two weeks before your period, and like and we'll get into those symptoms absolutely. But it's no fun to have PMS for two weeks. We might have a light case of PMS maybe a day or two before, where you might crave a little chocolate or maybe feel maybe just a little bit more emotional. But the whole goal is not to have PMS when your hormones are are balanced. You might know that your period's coming on the calendar, but you shouldn't necessarily feel it so much. So some of the classic symptoms, of course, is irritability. I find irritability more so than depression. You might get weepy, but snappy. That's what everyone says is their patience is short, their tolerance is short. And unfortunately, we take it out on the people closest to us, not the grocery boy, but we take it out on our boyfriends, husbands, kids, you know, the people that we love the most, unfortunately. So irritability is a big one. Acne. You know, having having a couple of pimple, you know, we all get a pimple here and there, no big deal. But when you're getting quite a few around your jawline or on your neck, that's very commonly happening. Also, too, you'll people will claim, complain about water weight. I mean, and some people can put up, you know, anywhere between five to eight pounds of water weight, where they just feel puffy and heavy and bloated until they do get their period, and then it and then it all sloughs up. You know, slough us off on that. Also, like I said, with the weepiness, the irritability, the moodiness is you can have cramping. People complain, complain about cramping and that's also PMS. Some, any, 
is also typically the time when a woman would have a menstrual migraine. Yeah. So those are, and usually, like you say, it's happening up to two weeks, but usually like the seven to 10 days before they actually- oh, And I forgot the cravings. That's like of number course. one. Yeah, yeah. Salty, crunchy, sweet and smooth, desserts. Chocolate, is, chocolate, yeah, yeah. chocolate, <laughs> chocolate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no. like I mentioned, sure, you know, a day before your period, you might feel like, oh, I want a little chocolate. No biggie. But two weeks before your period and you're wanting to eat more, then you end up gaining weight because you're, you know, two weeks out of the month. And then but, that's half your life. You don't want to be feel- you know, not good for 50% of your life. Yeah, right. Well, there's a physiologic reason as to why a woman's appetite goes up, but it always goes up for the wrong kinds of foods, right? They're not eating, their appetite doesn't go up and saying, you know, your brain isn't telling you to have more broccoli and chicken breasts. It's telling you to eat all the things that are, you know, pleasurable, enjoyable because it wants an immediate source of calories because your body is actually making, making new tissue. It needs the energy to be able to do that. But our brain sometimes kind of leads us astray, leads us awry a little bit in that process. Now, would you say that usually this window, this two weeks, you know, seven to 10 days to two week window that women actually feel better? Sometimes their best week of the month is actually the week that they actually menstruate. Yeah, I have some women and unfortunately, you know, they get their periods that PMS kind of lingers along, but from maybe day four to day 10 is when they feel good because then they ovulate and then they don't feel good and, you know, the hormones are imbalanced there. And then it's really all about balancing the hormones. I have some women, they tell me they only have, you're right, one week out of the month that they feel good. And then that's when I ask them, you know, that's three fourths of your life. You don't feel good. Do you really want to go through life that way? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, obviously. And and sometimes the birth control will help and then sometimes it doesn't help at all. So where do you think that, where do you think PMS in general, what what is the underlying issue that is driving some of that PMS? Like I mentioned before, it's definitely the hormonal imbalance. So I find it's more so the progesterone insufficiency. So the progesterone, so we make estrogen and progesterone when we're having our periods day one to day five, there's not much estrogen and progesterone because all the hormones have to drop to allow the entire uterine lining to slough off. Then the estrogen rises, it peaks at day 12, and then you have an ovulation. And really we don't make progesterone until starting right after ovulation, right around day 14 to day 28, and then we have our periods again. So really it's more about that progesterone secretion from day 14 to day 28 that disrupts everything and causes PMS. Okay. So you went through those numbers really quick. So day 12 is what? is when your estrogen will go, will peak, it'll actually surge. It'll go the highest it's going to be in your entire month. And then that causes that mature egg that's in your ovary to burst through and cause ovulation. So day one of a, you know, so we're talking these numbers. So day one is the first day of a woman's period, right? So you just go through, whether it's a 28 day cycle, whatever, what day on average do most women ovulate on? Usually it's in a perfect 28 day cycle, it's 14, but some women have 32 day cycles and then they might ovulate a little bit later. I have a lot of women that have 25 day cycles where it's 25 days between periods and then they might actually ovulate, you know, on day 12. So, you know, everybody is a little bit differently. Typically in a perfect world, we ovulate 14 days before our next period. But when we ovulate, when the egg leaves the ovary, there's a little spot that it leaves on there called the corpus luteum, and that's what secretes progesterone. If we don't secrete enough progesterone, that's where you see a lot of symptoms of PMS or it secretes a bunch of progesterone, but then the progesterone drops dramatically maybe a week before the period starts. And then you'll, that's where, depending on when that progesterone drops or when that progesterone is insufficient is when you would have your symptoms of PMS. Now, when you had mentioned about day one of the period, day one is when you're actively bleeding. Like I am bleeding, there's red blood, as opposed to spotting 
isn't day one. And that is also very common with low progesterone and PMS is women will be like, okay, I started spotting on day 20 and then I kept spotting and then I kept spotting and then there was no period for another week. So then they spot, spotted, spotted, got a period and then they spotted after. Some women actually will have some sort of, some form of bleeding for almost two weeks out of the month. Right, right. You know, that could be, you know, concerning, right? Uh, Certainly a woman doesn't want to be, you know, bleeding or spotting on an ongoing basis. Uh, Obviously a sign of some kind of dysfunction or disruption, you know, they could certainly become anemic at that point. Iron deficiency, you know, could be an issue. So how would you handle a situation like that? Well, I like to do blood work, but when you're a menstruating female, our hormones are changing every, you know, every single day, as I'd mentioned from day day one to day 28 in a perfect 28 day cycle, our hormones are different every single day. A lot of times the best way to, to check for that PMS is to get their subjective information, right? To find out what are your symptoms. And then at the same time to do some blood work. I love doing blood work because that gives us some objective information. And then a lot of times I like to do the blood work right around day 21, because if you're going to do someone's progesterone on day one to day 12 or 14, it's going to show up low. And that's where people, I've had plenty of people come in with their blood work and they show me that their estrogen and progesterone are low. And they said, their doctor said that they're menopausal. But then I asked them, when did you get this done? And I was on my period. Well, of course your estrogen and progesterone are going to be low. So there's really a timing piece to it with menstruating females where with non-menstruating females, like maybe they've gone through menopause, they still have a uterus, they've gone through menopause. That isn't, the timing isn't quite so specific, but also not just testing the progesterone and the estrogen is we want to test their thyroid as we talked about in, you know, our, our episode two and episode three, we want to test the adrenal hormones and the thyroid hormones because oftentimes the adrenals and the thyroid are what's orchestrating the imbalance between the estrogen and progesterone. Yeah, right. As we talked about the, you know, kind of the balance between the metabolic hormones, the major metabolic hormones, insulin, cortisol, thyroid, and the effect that those hormones have on the more downstream, less significant sex hormones, the estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, you can live you can live fine without your sex hormones, right? We spay and neuter our dogs and cats and they live just fine. Uh, you cannot live without those metabolic hormones. The metabolic hormones dictate everything. And, and we talked about last episode as well about the adrenals and the relationship between stress and female hormone issues, whether it's menopause, whether it's PMS, whether it's perimenopause or menopause, you know, there's a kind of an underlying issue there that is driving some of that female hormone imbalance. Now, another term, just to kind of throw it out there because people say this all the time, I hear it in a variety of different avenues. People throw out the term, now you said progesterone insufficiency. Um, that one isn't really talked about very much. They always hear about estrogen dominance. Okay, so what is your opinion of estrogen dominance? Well, you know, a lot of people pay a lot of attention to estrogen because estrogen is, you know, a main hormone. Everybody knows what it is. Estrogen is probably one of the most awesome hormones there is because it makes us female. So it's a great hormone, but people don't really pay a lot of attention to progesterone, which I think that's probably a huge key component to to monitor. So in someone that truly has estrogen dominance, their progesterone is just fine, but for some reason their estrogen is being produced from their ovaries at an accelerated rate. So you can kind of think about progesterone level good, estrogen high. That's not really that common. What I tend to, you know, potato, potato, we all, you know, have different names for it. 
I think the true definition of estrogen dominance really is more of a progesterone insufficiency. And you see that more commonly where women's estrogen is just fine, or even in the case of perimenopause, the estrogen is a dropped a little bit, but it's the progesterone that's dropped down. And that that is different from estrogen, true estrogen dominance. Somebody with a progesterone insufficiency has those symptoms of PMS. They have mainly the irritability and the trouble staying asleep, which is another one I didn't mention that's huge, and the cravings but that and, and the weight gain. Where somebody with estrogen dominance, they too have the weight gain, but they have more, not so much irritability as they do more depression, more sadness, more weepiness, the you know, the plight of the earth is is heavy on my shoulders as opposed to somebody with low progesterone is just like, you're really bothering me right now because I can hear you breathing or stop chewing. I can't stand it. You know, little things that people can't control. That, that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> I, I think I hear that once in a while. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> uh, yes, I do. Anyways, okay. So these are, you know, very maybe subtle. Uh, sometimes they're not subtle at all, right? Some of these symptoms sometimes are pretty significant. And and like you mentioned, the family members, the husband, the spouse, the boyfriend, the kids, everyone starts to, you know, there's like this timing that comes into play. The men kind of know where it is, whether they keep it on their iPhones or on the calendar, they kind of know that they have to start walking on eggshells because their significant other is going to start to experience some of these things. And a lot of it is on the mental emotional plane, right? And a lot of it is about their mood, their behavior, their, you know, their back and forth. You know, I've had quite a few women tell me that their boyfriends think they're bipolar because one minute they're, now that's a significant diagnosis. That's not really the same thing at all. That's just, you know, kind of a layman's description, but the, the severity or the volatility of their mood swings goes from one, one extreme to the other in a matter of sometimes seconds or minutes. And, you know, if there's a big explosion, they're really, you know, irritated. And the next minute they're crying because they feel guilty about it. And they're really kind of at the mercy of their hormones. They really don't know. They don't really don't know what to do. Yeah, it really is biology because that is true. You know, you feel this way and you can't help it and you can't understand why you feel this way. And then you, you lash out at someone. And then later, you know, it's like, oh, I shouldn't have got so mad at the kids. I feel, you know, I feel bad. They didn't need to hear me get mad like that. But it is really those hormones have such a huge effect on our behavior and our well being and our, and our emotions. And this is the cool part is we can balance that. That's, that's not hard. Yeah. And that does not mean giving someone a prescription for birth control. Oh, no. Birth control pills are a Band-Aid. The second you go off of the birth control pills, because you can't be on them forever, is when you have to finally deal with those symptoms. You're you're going to pay the piper at some point. You can't just, you know, blindfold and ignore it. And you, and you also think about it too is, sure, if somebody's 19 years old and they're on birth control pills, okay, but you don't want to be on birth control pills at 35 or 40. Uh, no, no. I think there's, uh, not only is it really not effective, but I think there's there's actually some risks associated with yeah. that as well too. Just because, you know, we talk about and deal with and prescribe bioidentical hormones all the time. Birth control is not bioidentical hormone replacement. It is something completely different. And I think that's where all the risks are associated with the synthetic commercial conventional types where sometimes the hormones in general all kind of get lumped together. And that's kind of another idea or concept to bring up is that hormone replacement is not just for menopausal females, right? It is for women 
I mean, I know you and I both have even teenagers that are sometimes on maybe maybe it's a progesterone or a thyroid or something like that. Or even, some balancing in terms of herbs or supplements to balance their hormones. Absolutely. You yeah. balance hormones at any age. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and that's where you start to see, you know, the thing that a teenager or a a woman in her early twenties or thirties, she's gonna have, you know, PMS trouble. And that could turn into irregularity, it could turn into heavy bleeding, it could turn in just to the physical symptoms, the mental emotional symptoms, and then which we'll talk about at some other point, we'll talk about PCOS, which is, you know, another kind of reproductive age female problem. Now they start getting into, you know, fertility issues and they're not having a period. So it kind of, you know, there's a couple of ends of the uh, ends of the spectrum there, but just giving someone birth control or something to solve some of these female hormone related. I know that there's been a trend and I don't know why this trend is there, but you and I both have come across women in their, you know, mid to late forties even that are still on birth control, you know, and that was like the, you know, that was like a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea at all. I, I think that, you know, birth control should be used for like a finite amount of time, a very short amount of time because it does serve a purpose. Right, it keeps people from having pregnancies that they don't want. But I think it, you know, there's definitely a risk associated with that for sure. Yeah, no, you definitely don't want to be on birth control pills after, you know, in your fifties. That's that absolutely not. But in your late forties, you know, like you said, birth control pills are for birth control. It's not to make your skin clear. It's not to keep you from having heavy periods. It's not to keep you from having PMS. You know, there are ways that we can work on that because those are signs and symptoms that something in your system has gone awry that we want to correct for, not just Band-Aid. And I know that we've kind of touched on this already again, but just to kind of circle back around, and I know you and I both do this, when someone comes in that has a PMS-related issue, one of the first things you think about is you think about thyroid function and maybe adrenals as well too, but a way to get them to improve way to almost kind of realign their female hormone cycle is to use the thyroid as a way to do that. Are you treating a thyroid issue? Are you addressing a thyroid issue? Not really. You're trying to optimize the thyroid, which then has that, you know, kind of major impact on improving female hormone function. And that's, of course, not a conventional approach. A gynecologist is never going to put a patient on thyroid for female hormone related issues, but you and I do it because it works. It works all the time, but that's one of those, uh, you know, approaches that is not thyroid medications for an endocrinologist. That's what they do. That's not for a gynecologist to prescribe. They're going to prescribe the birth control and whatever. So it's kind of out of their, you know, out of their uh, repertoire of things that they're comfortable prescribing. Again, I think there's that you know, inside the box kind of thinking, but you and I've seen it many times where you give someone just a little bit of thyroid hormone, you know, whatever the case might be, not for their thyroid, but for female hormone issues. And, you know, they just, you know, they turn around within a matter of a few months, they're, they're back to normal. Well, a lot of times in that case is, you know, as we talked about in the thyroid episode on episode two, is their thyroid numbers might look normal, but they are kind of a low normal. So I still consider that like a subclinical subclinical hypothyroid. So it doesn't mean that they have to be on thyroid forever. It's just, again, the chicken and the egg. If you can optimize the thyroid function, then you can then downstream the female hormones balance out. And then the th- then after a while you take the thyroid away and everything just keeps going in that, in its natural, you know, rhythmic flow. Yeah, right. So you mentioned the term, we'll talk more about this later because this will be a whole separate topic, but you mentioned the term some sub, and I think this matter, this is significant to PMS in general. You mentioned the term subclinical hypothyroid. So what does that mean? That means that your thyroid is 
low, but it's not diseased and it's not technically so low that you have Hashimoto's disease or you have true hypothyroid. It's just that its function isn't optimal. So a way that I explain it to people is I tell them that the labs are normal, but symptoms are present. So that's where you can kind of, in some ways, justify as a doctor or as a physician, you can justify writing a prescription for something that technically is... They don't have a diagnosable thyroid problem except based on clinical presentation. That is a really controversial topic, which is why we're going to spend some more time on it later. And you don't, you don't put any, I never put anybody out of physical, a physiological range. Even putting them on a little bit of thyroid, their TSH is not going to go, you know, super low. You know, their T4 and T3 aren't going to change up too much. It's just a little bit to put you in what would you, when you look at lab values, they're, they're very broad. The whole idea is to optimize hormones so you keep them in the high one-third. You're not out of range, but you're in the high one-third where a lot of doctors are looking for disease. And as long as you're in range, regardless of where that is on that huge, vast reference range, they say you're normal. And I don't want to be normal or just fine. I want things to be perfect. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk more about subclinical hypothyroid, but in relationship to specifically PMS and maybe even perimenopause, I think that the subclinical hypothyroid is a major component of that. And maybe because that goes back to even to the adrenals as well and the stress component. And it just, as you say, it just kind of trickles down the line from the major hormonal issues and it, and it works its way down, but it manifests as being, or it's perceived as being a female hormone issue, but in reality, it's not. That's just a manifestation of symptoms, not really the exact cause of that type of a problem. So again, a little bit of out of the box thinking, you know, when a woman's having female hormone issues now, you know, from a treatment perspective, we talked about not giving them birth control. You know, that's not, you know, no one of a functional medicine minded doctor thinks giving a woman birth control is a good idea, you know, for, for management of symptoms. That's, there's so many other better ways to do that. You know, now progesterone is something that if we had one thing to choose for a woman of any age, progesterone would probably be, you know, uh, would probably be the answer. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah. And bioidentical progesterone, because there are synthetic forms of progestins out there that doctors refer to as progesterone, but they're not. So we always want to use a micronized bioidentical progesterone from a compounding pharmacy. And then like you had mentioned doing some adrenal supplementation, some adrenal glandulars, work, you know, working on the adrenals, working on the thyroid, maybe thi- a little thyroid medication, maybe not. There's lots of ways to get someone's thyroid to get upregulated without actually giving them medication. And then at the same time, when you're looking at progesterone, there's some women that cannot take progesterone. That wouldn't be a wise idea for those women. Then I actually use a combination of different herbs that actually work really, really good. So that's where it comes back to, as we always say, the individuality. You know, let's what's an individualized treatment plan for that particular patient versus for another patient. Yeah, sometimes you know, well, not sometimes, but in, in our training as uh, naturopathic doctors, there is a concept called the therapeutic order. Um, that you you start off with things that are kind of the least invasive and kind of work your way up. So depending on the patient situation or the person situation, you can do you know, diet and lifestyle, nutritional deficiencies, you know, herbs and, you know, other types of nutrients and supplementation and work your way up into medications. Now, from a conceptual standpoint, you know, the high order on a, you know, on the therapeutic order would be, you know, chemo, radiation, surgeries would be, you know, the high level of that therapeutic order. We're always looking at that concept and trying to pick the things. And it's usually never just one or it's never a linear progression. It's always kind of a combination of things of how you put together a, you know, a treatment plan for someone that is usually going to entail nutrition, supplementation, maybe, maybe, maybe some hormone replacement, depending on what's going on. So the point of talking about PMS in general is, you know, I think women have been having PMS probably since time began, right? I mean, it's been an ongoing issue. Even, uh, you know, when you go to the 
a drugstore, you know, there might be like a Midol or Pamprin or, you know, some of these things that are available. And all those really are just glorified NSAIDs, right? There's just ibuprofen in there, you know, that maybe help with the cramping. Uh, nothing really helps with the, the mood related issues besides, like I said, just getting the birth control prescription. But just so if you are dealing with something like that, just know that there are a lot of options out there that can help you you know, smooth this out with, and honestly, I know you see it. How long, when someone comes in, let's say they have really bad PMS, you know, 10 out of 10 PMS, you know, mood, cramping, the you know, heavy periods, blood clots, all that kind of stuff. How long do you think it should take for them to transition to where they have a little bit more uh, regularity and more normalcy to their period? Well, the, the mood wise, that that's very quickly. Once you kind of get those hormones balanced, that you know that's just a matter of weeks before that. You know the mood and the emotions seem in the sleeping is better. But in terms of the physical, the heavy periods or the spotting, because that lining has that tendency to get so thick in the uterine lining, is sometimes that can take a couple of cycles to thin that down. You know to yeah. get you know the clots and the heavy periods and the spotting. So usually you can stop the spotting. That actually stops fairly quickly within the first cycle or two. But trying to help with those heavy periods, that can usually take sometimes up to three or four cycles. Yeah, right. So usually within three to six months, usually it's a, a pretty significant turnaround of where you know where they where they started to where they are in that three to six month range. They're usually going to be a pretty good place at that point. Oh yeah, three months for sure. I mean, most most people are coming in with PMS. Sure, nobody likes to have a heavy period and you're going through a tampon into a pad in an hour. Nobody nobody wants to do that. But they're mainly coming in because they don't like to feel irritable. They don't like to have the cravings. They don't like the weight gain. They don't like the insomnia. That that's what they're kind. You know, and and also some people even describe it as you know a little like raging. You know, some people they that's what they're truly coming in for. Yeah. And that that's well before three months. That's- and and the impact that that has on the other family members, right? The children, the spouse, the boyfriend, the husband. There's a, a certain level of guilt that seems to be associated with that because you know they just can't help it. They respond to certain situations and the dynamic between family members or coworkers, right? Even people you see on a regular basis as our family mm-hmm. members and coworkers. And that can sometimes put strains on those relationships. You know, so I've had a few, and I know you have as well, you know, the husbands come in later and they're like shaking your hand and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, because... That's usually more when you get their libido up. Yeah, if you yeah. can get a, woman, a lady's libido up, yeah, their, their man's very yeah, happy. That's, that's, that's definitely <laughs> But that's true. a whole other podcast in itself. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about, you know, and you're, you're right, female libido is challenging, which that also, uh, libido, female libido does expand, you know, pretty much all the decades, right? From, you know, women in their 20s, 20s to women in their 60s and beyond, you know, it's kind of all over the place. We'll save that one for another episode. So PMS, it's a solvable problem. It doesn't have to be, you know, this black hole of, you know, you're just going to have to be this way forever. I mean, I don't know how many women I've talked to over the years that they've had bad, you know, bad, you know, periods or bad PMS for literally their entire life. It doesn't really have to be that way. There are, you know, there are some definite solutions out there to these issues. And again, whether it is nutrition, lifestyle modification, supplementation, hormone replacement, all of the things together usually is what it entails. You know, as you say, somewhere between three to six months they're going to be, you know, feeling much better than they than they have. So, anything, uh, last little comments or things to add on this topic of PMS? You know, I, I'm, I'm impressed. I think we, we, you know, as an overview. I mean, I could, like I said, I, I could keep going and talking forever. But as an overview, I think that was really good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's uh, obviously a lot more subtleties and nuances we could certainly mm-hmm. discuss, and we'll kind of dive into some of those a little bit more later on. But just again, as an overview, as we're just getting these few first episodes out there, you know, these are the kinds of situations that we deal with on a regular basis. So we're not the jack of all trades. We don't really try to deal with everything. We are very specific, and we know how to deal with them fairly effectively. Hopefully, this was 
helpful for everyone that's listening, whether your girlfriend or wife is dealing with something like that, or you are specifically yourself. Um, hopefully this gave you some some insight and some ideas on how to find some solutions for you. So as I've asked on the first few episodes, you could go to iTunes if you're new to the podcast, or if you're a listener from before, we'd appreciate a review on iTunes. You know, anything that you can do um, would help us in our popularity, in our exposure. You know, we're trying to grow our audience on a regular basis. We'd really appreciate that. So anything else to add, Dr. Davidson? No, and if you also too, you can visit our website, progressyourhealth.com. We've got a, you know, our info on there and some I think we've got some blogs and, and whatnot. So yeah, no, that's great. Okay. Well, okay. until next time, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time on another episode of the Progress Your Health Podcast. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care now. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.